Well, good evening, church family, and a warm welcome again. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it is great to be back after sabbatical and great to be preaching and sharing God's word with you again. So I'd invite you to turn with me for, to our scripture reading in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. Uh, you'll find this on page 894 of our, our church Bibles. As you turn there, let me say that uh, every week we post our sermons on, on our website along with some additional resources for you to take a look at if you'd like to dig a little deeper into the passage that week. Uh, you might notice this evening that there are some brackets and footnotes surrounding John chapter 8 and on the website this week there'll be uh, resources to uh, tell you more about that if you're interested in, in learning, learning more about uh, why those are in this text and how the New Testament was originally compiled and put together. Uh, great resources on our website. Uh, to, to help you uh, work through those issues. Now, though, we're going to read John chapter 8, starting in verse 2 through to the end of verse 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word together this evening, we, we ask that you would uh, show us Christ, that in these moments we would do more than just sort of go through the normal routine, that we would do more than just uh, think through a text, but that our hearts and minds would be engaged in these moments, that we might experience Jesus for the power of your spirit and understand more of the implications of his great love for our lives. We pray it in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. Uh, one of the things that's interesting uh, when I go preach in other places is to see what kind of pulpits they have. And one of the interesting things that you'd never see from the congregation is that there's often signs and notes left for the preacher on, on the pulpit. So here are a couple of my, my favorite that I've experienced. One that said, um, the toilet is broken on the pulpit, right? And I think... I don't know what to do with this information, you know, and I don't know, am I meant to tell the congregation? Is this a warning for me? I don't know whether we, you know. Um, another one was like super passive aggressive. You ready? The service ends no later than 12. I was like, okay, all right? You know, message communicated. But my favorite uh, message, my favorite note that you'll find behind any pulpit anywhere is the verse that we have behind the pulpit that we use on a Sunday morning here at McLean. And it's not an announcement for the congregation. It's not a passive, aggressive warning to the preacher. Instead, it's John 12, verse 21, where we read, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
The very last thing you see before you preach a sermon in our church are, are these words from John 12, verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what a great verse for you to see before you preach, because that's really the point of, of what we're doing here as a church. As Nathan said in his, in his welcome tonight, this isn't a country club. And if it is, there are better country clubs, right? Um, that, you know, this is, we don't just have kind of rules and do's and we're not just here to sort of have some sort of social hobnobbing. No, we're, we're here because we believe that Jesus is, is here and that the love of Christ changes us and that it makes a difference to our lives in ways that we've experienced and in many ways that we're yet to experience. And so our heart's desire together as a church every single week is to see Jesus. And that's what we hope to do tonight as we begin this sermon series together. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So let's see him together, starting in verse 2. If you have a church Bible, open it up, page 894. Uh, open up the Bible on your phone or, or another device. Let's work through this text and see Jesus together. When we arrive in verse 2, we read that it is early in the morning. So the sun is rising and Jerusalem is uh, waking up. A rooster crows, perhaps a dog barks, and, and dusty streets are starting to come alive. Market stalls are being opened and the early birds have arrived to get produce for the day. Children with sleep in their eyes are beginning to play games on the street. And Jesus, in the midst of all, where is he? See verse 2? Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. It's early in the morning, but Jesus is he's at the temple. He's in church. And a large crowd has gathered, even though it's, it's still early. And now they would stand horseshoed around the teacher as he sits. You wonder about the, the attitude of those in the crowd that morning. I'm sure some were curious. They'd, they'd got up early to go and hear this man that they'd heard so much about. No doubt some were cautious because as you hear the words of Jesus, he both speaks to your deepest longings and yet challenges you to, to your core. No doubt others in the congregation were, were convinced. They'd got up that morning because they knew that his words were more refreshing than sleep. And no doubt tonight as well, as all of us gather together to come to see Jesus, we come from different places as well. Perhaps tonight you're curious, perhaps you're cautious, perhaps you're convinced wherever we are, it will do us good to see him. Now, we don't know what Jesus is teaching on that morning. We don't know his topic. We don't know his theme. We don't know his text. I, I would love the podcast. I really would. To hear Jesus preach to see how he made not just the scriptures, but your own heart come alive as he explained the gospel and, and the kingdom. But whatever the theme, he soon interrupted. There's a commotion, a disturbance, a noise. Can you imagine verse three happened tonight, right? Imagine verse three happened, happened right now this evening through those back doors down the center aisle onto the platform before us. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. Okay, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious experts of the day. They are holy in their own eyes and in the eyes of many others as well, but now they burst in as one with furrowed brows and indignation. And struggling to keep her balance on the crest of this angry wave, we read, is, is a barely dressed woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. 
So just moments before, as the city awoke, she has been lying in bed in the arms of a man who isn't her husband. And then there's been a crash at the door and she's been yanked from the bed and she's been marched into the streets by men the age of her father. And then they've shoved her into the middle of church, into the middle of the congregation, and standing her right, right before the presence of Jesus himself. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be so exposed in that way? To have your biggest shame your biggest guilt, your biggest secret, not just found out, but publicly paraded, right down the middle of the aisle, in the middle of church. That's what these scribes and these Pharisees have done. And then in verse four, look at verse four with me, read what they say. They say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Verse 6 explains what's, what's going on here. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see what these kind of so-called supposed holy dudes are up to? They're not concerned with righteousness. They're not concerned with holiness. They're not concerned with justice. If they were, they'd have brought the man with them. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. You can't get caught in the act of adultery by, by yourself. There has to be two to play this game, and the law condemned both of them, and yet they have decided to bring her and not bring him. This is like the selective outrage of the patriarchy that are using her merely as a pawn in their game to trap Jesus. That's what they're up to here. In some smoke-filled room, these geniuses have come up with this um, quite devious dilemma. A classic catch-22, where they're going to bring this woman to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, should we stone her or should we not? Because if Jesus says, yes, you should stone her, they know that that will be breaking the law of Rome. So Jerusalem at this time is, is under the rule of the Romans, and Roman law forbade Jews from, from executing anyone. So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, he'd be in trouble with, with those authorities. And yet, if Jesus says, don't stone her, then he'll be breaking the law of Moses. The Old Testament law, which did command that she and the man ought to be stoned for this offense. So either way, they reason, they'll have basis for a charge against him. He'll be breaking the law of Rome or he'll be breaking the law of Moses. One way or another, they'll have him in their trap. In the midst of this, don't you wonder what's going through the poor woman's mind? Standing there, exposed before the crowd, all eyes focused on her. Some, no doubt, wide with shock, but others narrow in a kind of judgment. Along with the crowd, she sees these religious leaders, these religious leaders whose fists are clenched around rocks that they've selected to stone the lust out of her. She sees, of course, remember where all this takes place? She doesn't just see the crowd and the religious leaders, she also sees the temple. That's where all this is is taking place. That place that made you very painfully aware of your failings because it was the place that you went to offer sacrifices for your sin. And no doubt this woman has been there before, been there to offer sacrifices for her own sin, taking a lamb with her to offer to the Lord. But now she has no lamb and it looks like she's the one who's about to be sacrificed. So isn't it beautiful that in the midst of all of that she sees something or better, someone else? Yes, she sees the crowd, she sees the leader, she sees the temple, but also, verse 6, she sees 
Jesus, but <laughs> she's not really sure what to make of what he's up to. And neither are we. Look at it. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, Jesus, what are you up to? Jesus is disarming. He does the unexpected. We can't put him nicely and neatly into any category or box. And I'm now amidst the drama of this moment. Jesus uh, stoops down, he takes a knee, bends over, and using his finger as a pencil, he begins to, to etch something in the dust. We can just imagine how the crowd would have jostled and tried to sort of crane their necks to see what he was writing. No doubt the religious leaders did, did the same, looking bemused at one another before looking down to see what it was that he had said. But <laughs> wouldn't it have been beautiful for the woman as for the first time that day, all eyes were no longer on her? Right? She has a moment of relief as Jesus spends to write on the ground. What did Jesus write? Well, 2,000 years of church history and a week of careful study, I can officially reveal we have no idea. <laughs> Theories abound from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, some that make some kind of theological sense, others that are just completely bizarre. But the bottom line fact is, we don't know. And if we were intended to know, it would have been included for us. But we're not intended to know because that's not the main point of the passage. Let's get back to the main point of the passage by getting back to the text. The religious leaders, they don't really know what to make of what he's doing. And so in verse 7, they do, um, they do what all ideologues do, which is repeat their same point only louder. Right? See that in verse 7? They continue to ask him. Stone her or not, Moses or Rome, whose side are you on? But Jesus, yes, stood up and said to them, yeah, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is a reply such as only Jesus could give. These, these holy guys, they think they're so smart, right? And they do not know who they're messing with. Jesus is the, the, the definition of all things tender and beautiful, but he is also the definition of all things fierce and strong. He is a lion, and he's not to be played with, and he's not to be toyed with, and these religious leaders have bitten off more than what they can chew. And, but what Jesus actually does here, isn't it brilliant? Because he doesn't make light of her sin. What he does is shine light on their hypocrisy. You see that? He doesn't make light of her sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's not that big a deal. You know, you guys are making too much of this, blah, 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 blah. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make light of her sin. He's going to deal with that, and we'll see that in a second. What he does do, though, is shine a light on their hypocrisy by saying, okay, if your life is free from sin, then I guess you have the right to be so outraged. So yeah, if any of you have never done anything wrong, if any of you are perfect, go ahead, have at it, throw a stone. And then having said this, what does he do? Verse 8. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Imagine the tension in the air. It's kind of silent tension. As we await to see how the, the Pharisees will, will respond, the woman no doubt holds her breath. The crowd has a sense of, of anticipation. But instead of speaking, the religious leaders, verse 9, have no words. You see what they do in verse 9? When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Maybe someone inhaled as if to speak. 
But then no one spoke. And eyes drop and feet shuffle and the silence is only broken by rocks that fall from their hands. As one by one the accusers retreat, their accusations melting with them. And isn't it compelling that it's the older ones who leave first? It's the ones with gray hair who leave first. It's illustrative of a, a larger biblical truth we, we know, which is uh, for, for our mothers and our fathers in the faith, for those who have worked, walked longer with the Lord, the, the sign of spiritual maturity is humility. Spiritual maturity is measured in humility. And so, those who have walked longer with the Lord should, should challenge themselves. Does your humility demonstrate that you have walked long with the Lord? Are you setting a model and an example to the younger generation that would testify that, that all is grace? Because following their good example, you see what happens next? The young bugs leave too. Those who are older leave, then the younger ones leave, and then everyone leaves. Why? Because no one is fit to cast that stone. Everyone leaves except, verse 9, Jesus. You see it there? Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now listen, um, this isn't a good moment. The text, we haven't had the turn yet. This is a really like dark, dangerous ominous moment in the text. Why? Because we have a sinful woman who deserves to be stoned, and we have a sinless man who has every right to stone her, and we have a big pile of rocks. So this woman, she's not, she's not out of the woods yet. She's not sure what is about to happen, how Jesus is going to deal with her. Jesus is left alone with her because he is without sin, and in the shadow of the temple, she knows that Jesus has every right to stone her, because she knows that's what sin deserves. We talk about sin, we're just, we're just talking about those things we do that we ought not to have done. The things we haven't done that we ought, we ought to have done. The Bible says that our, our selfishness, our neglect, our, our pride, all of the things that are nasty and ugly within us have, have separated us from the God of life. And so the consequence of them is death. She's in a hopeless spot, as hopeless as we might find ourselves in tonight. But fortunately, the turn does come in verse 10. Because for hopeless people, there's grace. You see it? Jesus, verse 10, stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Just see on the level of human interaction, don't you love what Jesus is doing here? It's clear from the scene that everyone's left. But he still asks her this question, hey, where are they? Because he wants her to see that everyone's left. <laughs> he wants her to lift up her eyes and see that all those who had dragged her there, all those who had poured out such scorn, they've all, they've all vanished. There's, there's no one to condemn her anymore. And as she does, she looks up and verse 11 says, in response to his question, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And so our passage closes, verse 11. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Here's the term. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Into this ominous moment, Jesus speaks a word of forgiveness and a word of freedom. First, a word of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. They can't condemn you, and I won't condemn you. I have every right to, but, but I won't. Now, this is, this is gospel talk, which means it's not cheap talk. It's costly talk. 
Jesus knows and she knows in the shadow of this temple that she has no lamb to give to God and so she could be sacrificed for her own sin. But here Jesus is uh, offering forgiveness because he knows that he will be the sacrifice that she lacks. It's the teaching of the gospel from beginning to end that Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to kill her, he'd rather be killed for her. He doesn't want to cast a stone at her. Instead, on the cross, he'll have stones cast at himself. As there, he takes the punishment of the law, the full weight of God's wrath, even death itself poured out on him so that we can be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus takes everything so we can be condemned for nothing. And Jesus knows what awaits him in just uh, a short time from now. And so he offers this woman forgiveness, full and free. And I just want us to try and um, break out of the busyness and the routine and the day-to-day realities of, of all our circumstances and all our lives to see this text posing us that kind of ultimate and eternal question. Um, one day, every single one of us will stand before Jesus alone with a pile of rocks. And the only one who could condemn us, namely Christ, is offering us forgiveness today. Tom Tarrant uh, wrote a book recently called, oh, I always forget the first word, I did this this morning too, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. His story of how he went from being a terrorist in the KKK to a follower of Jesus. I encourage you to read it. In that book he says, God is not a demanding taskmaster. He is a loving, gracious Father who forgives and restores those who repent and return to him. Listen to this, it's great. He's the God of the second chance, the third chance, and many more. Isn't that good? This was not our woman's first mistake, nor was it her second or her third. But it was the time that she responded to Christ and received forgiveness. And I don't know what's going on in your life or how many chances you feel you've had or blown but today is a really good day for us all to come to Jesus. Today is a really good day for us to see that you don't need to live under condemnation anymore. You don't need to live under the condemnation of God, this sense that he is angry with you, this vague sense perhaps that he's still somehow displeased with you. Our assurance of pardon tonight from the scriptures themselves said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken all the condemnation that we deserve upon himself. He's dealt with it, it's done with it, it's over, it's gone. And if God doesn't condemn us, then you know, no one else can condemn us either. Uh, we, we live in a town, um, a world in general, but a town in particular that's full of rock throwers, full of people who love to condemn. And you may have suffered through the condemnation of, of your parents or your colleagues or your spouse or Instagram or worst of all, just like you may berate and condemn yourself more than anyone else could berate and condemns you. And the Bible would say, hey, you don't need to do that anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus offers this woman forgiveness, full and free, and there's a chance for us to receive that same forgiveness tonight in Christ, forgiveness, has come. But second, and, and, and quickly, after offering forgiveness, Jesus commands freedom. 
Forgiveness, neither do I condemn you. Now, freedom, go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, the meaning of these words is established by their order. The order is everything. So isn't it significant that it's, it, it's not sin no more and then I won't condemn you. It's I don't condemn you, so sin no more. You understand the profound difference? Uh, Christianity depends on that order. Ultimately, every other religion and teaching in the world reverses this verse. Only in Christianity do you have this unbelievable teaching that in the gospel, obedience doesn't earn grace. Rather, grace results in obedience. So as as we wrestle with that, we start to see that Jesus' words here aren't, okay, I forgive you, but you got super lucky. It was really close, right? Right? I forgive you, but like, you gotta try harder and you gotta do better. Hey, sin no more. That, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> it's not a reprimand. Instead, it's a, it's a loving command that she enjoy the freedom of grace that is now hers in forgiveness by living a life of, of joyful obedience. Best picture I came across to understand this comes from Jesus himself in Mark chapter 2. Do you remember in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And it's one of the most, it's just one of the brilliant stories in the Bible because he's brought to Jesus by his four friends. And his four friends arrive at the house Jesus is preaching in. The place is packed, standing room only. They can't get to Jesus. And these guys are like, oh, challenge accepted, right? And they climb up onto the roof and they dig, big, dig this big hole in the roof and there's dust falling. And then they lower this dude down into the middle of Jesus, right? And everyone's kind of looking around saying, you know, what's going on here? And Jesus looks at the man. Do you remember what he says? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, forgiveness. And it's great because the holy dudes are there that day as well. And they get all antsy and their knickers in a twist and they start saying, hey, who can forgive sins except God alone? And we say, well, you know, for once that, that's actually true. No one can forgive sins except God alone, but you're still completely wrong because Jesus is God and therefore he can forgive sins. But do you remember what Jesus says next? After he gives forgiveness, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. Remember what he says, the paralytic? He says, so rise, pick up your mat, and walk. Forgiveness gives way to freedom. This thing that has literally paralyzed you all your life. I'm going to deal with your eternal problem. I'm going to deal with your most pressing need. But but now I'm going to usher you into a new life. Where you'll no longer be held back by the things that you were formerly held back by. And that's more what's happening here in our text. Jesus is saying to the woman, yes, I'm enough for your forgiveness. I'm enough for the forgiveness of sin. But do you see what sin is doing to your life? Do you see how this adultery hasn't brought you what you hoped it would? Of course, in in the moment, one of the reasons we sin is that there's an appeal to it. We think it will give us something. And surely she thought that she'd received some kind of intimacy, some kind of love, some kind of warmth from this affair. But Jesus is seeing, saying, see how that hasn't worked out. This is, it's left you naked and ashamed in front of the crowd, and it's done much worse to your soul. You, you know the emptiness and, and sorrow that you feel, you feel inside. So that, that way of life that is, that is metaphorically paralyzed you, Leave it behind. 
Sin nearly killed you. So leave it behind. Sin no more. I've got something much better for you. Jesus is here establishing a kingdom life of righteousness that's built on a foundation of grace, a life of joyful obedience that is free from shame and guilt and regret, where we can move on from the sin that nearly killed us to live in the freedom of an obedient life. Forgiven by Christ, we are now free to live for Christ. And so we gotta stop and ask, if, if you're a Christian tonight, If you're not a Christian tonight, we need to dwell on the order of these things. Forgiveness comes before freedom, and you can't have freedom until you have forgiveness. You need grace before your life will change. But if you are a Christian, if you've received this forgiveness, then we need to stop and ask ourselves, um, to what extent are we living in this freedom? When Jesus says, go sin no more, are are we obeying that command? Are we seeking to apply that command to our lives? Are we seeking to follow him in joyful obedience or are we still holding on to aspects of our own life, our old life? See, lean into this with me for a second because don't, don't we all know that sin has a way of just like hardening our consciences? We're really good at sinning and then not thinking about it. We're really good at just living life the way we kind of want to, especially if it doesn't have mass external or social consequences for us. And so we need to be soft and and teachable to to the Spirit who would come and say to us tonight, hey, Jesus wants his forgiven children to live in freedom. We We don't have to live that old way anymore. We can live the fullness of life in his kingdom. So I just wonder, um, what sin is he calling you to leave behind? Is there something in your life that that's paralyzed you? And that Jesus is calling you to leave behind. Someone in the office that you've got a little too close to. A more subtle culture of workaholism that you've just bought into. Uh, Struggling with anger anger or or bullying your spouse. Um, Habitually returning to to pornography or or being prideful or, or selfish or jealous. What is the recurring sin in your life that Jesus might be calling you tonight to move on from, to leave behind as you walk into, into freedom? You know, if we're, listening to, if we're listening to the Spirit, we'll all have something. Why? Because none of us is perfect. We're all works in progress. Um, he who is without sin need not listen to this part of the sermon, okay? You can take your stone and get out of here, all right? The rest of us are going to sit in this mess and try to figure it out, you know? How is Jesus calling me to, to live into freedom? How is Jesus calling you to live into freedom? That This passage gives us a, a beautiful verse to, to ask that the Spirit bring to mind in the moment of temptation and then to meditate on when we are struggling. Lord, help me put this old, I get there's a draw to this, but help me put this old way of life behind me. You haven't condemned me, so I don't want to sin anymore. In Christ, we have forgiveness, and in Christ, we have freedom. Okay, we're done. On that morning, Jesus, uh, this woman was, was dragged out of her bed, as Jesus would soon be dragged out of the garden, and she was accused by evil men, as Jesus would soon be accused without reason. And she was um, 
publicly exposed as Jesus would be publicly beaten. But when the moment came for her, there was no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus spoke up to speak forgiveness and freedom. And he did that because a short time from now, he wouldn't speak up on his own behalf. He would remain silent before his own accusers, ensuring that he went to the cross, but not just that he went to the cross, but that he'd also experience resurrection. And so we believe that the risen Christ is here tonight and that each of us has to answer the king. Has no one condemned you? If not, go, leave your life of sin. Let's live in the grace of forgiveness and the freedom of joyful obedience. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this section of your word that once again is um, <laughs> just something we would never make up. If, if we were to try and make up the gospel, we would have done it in reverse. Like all the other world's religions, we would have created a system whereby we behave and then you're pleased with us, that our obedience results in favor from you. And yet here you are in the person of your son to turn the world's religion upside down, to say, no, the way to be made well with me is, is grace and I'll forgive you full and free, and because I love you so much, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not done then. I'll continue to bring health and healing and restoration to your life so that you don't need to be paralyzed anymore, but can walk in the joy and the freedom of obedience. Lord, it's only in you that we can be accepted as we are and freed to become all that, that you made us to be. So, Lord, we wish to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.